Um, as we look at Hebrews chapter 6 tonight, my original goal uh, was to look at verses 9 through 20. And then uh, about 2 o'clock this afternoon, if you were in my office, you would have seen the white flag going up. Uh, and me surrendering just before I fell asleep. No. Um, we're going to look at Hebrews 6, 9 through 12 uh, tonight. Because the, the more I looked at verses 13 through 20, and uh, my notes on that, the more I realized we need to slow down in those verses and uh, look at that. So tonight we're going to be looking at Hebrews 9, 6, 9 through 12. As we uh, come to verses, verse 9, uh, we come to an encouraging passage. And some of you say, yes, yes, it'll be so good to be encouraged by the author of Hebrews tonight. You know, there are different ways that you can encourage someone, or you can, I, I should say, you, should, you can met, uh, motivate someone. You can do so uh, by warning them. That motivates. But you can also motivate someone by encouraging them. In some cases, you can do both, and that's what the author of Hebrews does. He starts with severe warning in chapter 6, and now he'll lead to some verses of consolation and encouragement. Uh, he will continue that uh, through verses uh, 13 through 20, and uh, we'll have to pick that up uh, next time. Several years ago now, I was reminded of the value of encouragement by one of my former students at Northland. Uh, I had had him in the undergrad program, and one day I sought him in the graduate program, and I just wanted to go up and see how he's doing. And uh, we got onto the topic of why he had decided to go beyond his bachelor's degree and into his master's degree to continue to study scripture. That's when he told me something that was just really shocking to me. He said one of the most significant reasons that he went to graduate school and was going to pursue seminary training after was because of a few comments that I wrote on one of his undergrad papers. At first, when he said that, I thought he was kidding, so I started laughing. But he was serious. He said that those words pushed him to learn more. So from that time forward, I wrote those same exact words on every undergraduate paper <laughs> that I graded. Uh, the effect soon wore off, very soon. <laughs> Confidence and encouragement can go a long way in motivating someone. Have you ever come alongside, uh, had someone come alongside of you to tell you how they had seen God at work in your life? How does it feel, or how does it make you feel when someone says that they believe that God is at work in you? One of my mentors in ministry is a man I, I, I greatly respect. I won't tell you his name, but one of the things I respect about him was when he spoke of his children, he always spoke the same way about them. He spoke. He spoke in encouraging ways about his son. It wasn't arrogance. It wasn't a form of, like, my son only does what is right. Actually, if you knew his son as a teenager, you would, you would wonder how his dad sometimes could have been so positive. But it was optimism, confidence, that God was doing a work in the life of his son. 
This was my mentor. I thought, that's the sort of dad I want to be. Not one who lies and makes up stuff, but one who's quick to observe the work of God in the life of my children. One of my favorite demonstrations of an author's confidence in other believers in the New Testament is found in Philippians 1 and verse 6. There the apostle Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it or will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. As we come to this passage of Scripture, the author of Hebrews believes that he will see great things from the Hebrew believers. I want you to look in your Bibles at verse 9. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. We're coming to the final parts of this warning passage where the the author offers expressions of consolation and comfort concerning these believers. Tonight we're going to look at the first statement of consolation in verses 9 through 12. And this expression really emphasizes two things about the author. As we come to this passage tonight, uh, I think that it would be wise for us to consider what we can learn about the way the author of Hebrews encourages his readers. In other words, uh, as we come, we're going to study the way that he encourages them so that we can learn better how to encourage one another in the faith. And so there are two things I'll point out about the author in this text. Very simply, first we see the author's confidence in verses 9 and 10. Now it might not appear this way at times in the last few verses, but the author is convinced of better things regarding his readers. Matter of fact, if you're paying attention this morning, you know that he just spoke about God's judgment that might come on some of them. Okay, depends on how you take that land passage in verse 8, the verse right before this. I think it may be describing believers who would fail to press on to maturity. They're like land bearing thorns and thistles who one day would be judged by God. Of course, uh, theologically, as I compare this text to other texts, I do not think that believers lose their salvation. I hope to make that very clear this morning. But we do know, according to passages like 1 Corinthians 3, that believers will face a judgment and In that passage, Paul uses the metaphor of fire to describe the nature of the judgment on believers. When he says, some of you will build on the foundation of Christ crucified gold, silver, and precious stones, and those things will survive. However, others of you, Paul says to the Corinthian church, will build on this foundation wood, hay, and stubble. 
And those sort of works as a New Testament believer will not withstand the fiery judgment of God. They will be burned down. Now, Paul makes it clear in that text, and I would hold it in this text as well, that believers, although they endure this fiery judgment that examines their work, they will be saved still. Yet so as by fire. That's how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 3. So as we come to this passage, the author of Hebrews has just warned them in verse 8 about land that bears thistles and thorns, but here he says uh, that he is more positive about his readers. And so he refers uh, to the fruit of his readers with a well-known triad of Christian virtues. Triad would be a group of three, faith, hope, and love. Did you see that in this text? Before I show you that in this text, you know that this group of three is found in other places all throughout the New Testament to describe genuine Christian conduct. So, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, it says this, Remembering before our God your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There, these three attributes are mentioned about the Thessalonian believers, true believers, who had demonstrated faith, love, and hope. We know in the great love chapter that this great triad of three ends the chapter. When Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. There again, these three virtues describe genuine Christian conduct, faith, love, and hope. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we won't read it, but Paul does the same thing with the Colossian assemblies and the the assemblies of Laodicea. He reminds them of their faith, love, and hope. In our passage, he speaks of their love, hope, and faith too. He's confident regarding them. Okay, and so what I want to point out in verses 9 and 10 is that his confidence regarding his readers being better than what he has said in verse 8 is based upon two things. And I think we can learn a lot about encouraging people from this. First, as we look at his confidence, we know that his confidence is because of their previous work. So it's a short passage to look again at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure, we're confident of better things, things that are belonging to salvation, faith, hope, and love. Four, how can you be confident? Because God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So the first reason Paul's confidence, uh, has confidence in these believers, that he, or, I'm sorry, that the author of Hebrews is confident is because of their previous work. In that verse, verse 10, he talks about their work in love. Other texts, these two words are put together. First Thessalonians 1, I think of the work of love. Love and work are clearly related in our text today. They are put together in a very close fashion. I like how George Guthrie explained why the author mentions these two things, work and love. This is what Guthrie said. He said, what is the basis of the writer's confidence in these people? And his answer Their faith has been lived out in the work they have, 
And they're manifesting a love for God expressed through ministry to his people. So the author is rejoicing in the past work and love of the Hebrew believers. And then he tells us something else about their past, his previous work in their life. He says that this work uh, was done for the name of God, for God's name. You see that in the text? And I, I think that's a wonderful observation as well. I mean, this is why we should do anything in treating and serving saints or people in the church. Why, what is our motivation? I think this is a good example. We do it for the name of God. We exist for the glory of God. I, I know many of you have memorized 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. This is whether you eat, eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the what? The glory of God. That's why we exist as new, new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. We exist for God's glory, for his name, so that when we serve people in the body, we're ultimately doing it not only for them, but for God, for his name. Now, this work and love that they have done becomes one of the ways that the author can demonstrate confidence in this situation. So one of the ways that he encourages the Hebrews is to look back at their past and to say, look what God has done already in your life. Look at the previous conduct that he has worked in your life. And he does not only do that here. I'm going to invite you to turn a few chapters later. Go to Hebrews 10, and uh, we'll look at some verses there. Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 36. Hebrews 10, 32, but recall the former days. Okay, he's writing to the same group of believers. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, okay, it sounds like once enlightened, right? After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves as a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." Here in this text as well, in a little bit longer fashion, he reminds his Hebrew readers of what it was like early in their Christian experience. Remember what you endured before. Remember the suffering that you were under. Remember you helped people in prison. Remember some of you were uh, provoked or abused as well. One of the things I think we can learn from the way the author of Hebrews encourages the Hebrews is... I think it would be very fitting for us as counselors and as people who are helping others to encourage them at times by, by reminding them of how God has enabled them to demonstrate faithfulness in the past. Let's imagine that com someone comes to you and they're burdened down with enslaving sin. Right? Okay, you think this would ever happen? So when it comes to you, they're burdened down with enslaving sin, right? They can't get to victory. They seem to struggle, and they screw up over and over and over again. I think one of the ways we can encourage them 
Now, we don't give them assurance of salvation. Only God does that. But we can remind them of acts of faithfulness that we have seen in their life previously. The author of Hebrews has confidence because of their previous work and also because of the way they're currently acting or living, at least many of them. But just before this, going back to our text in Hebrews 6, just before that basis of his confidence, he demonstrates to us that his confidence is actually rooted in something deeper than the Hebrews' previous faithfulness. His confidence rests on something more solid than his observation about their faith. Look again at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name. Okay, so the second basis of the author's confidence, the one that is the ultimate basis of his confidence, is the justice of God. His confidence in this chapter is ultimately rooted in God and his righteousness. So the author appeals to God's justice here. God will not forget their work and the love of Uh, that the readers have manifested in the past to other fellow believers. That's the author's confidence. And a matter of fact, if we had time to do the whole chapter tonight, that's where he goes the rest of this chapter. You get down from, uh, you know, verses 13 through 20, and he's going to talk about, he's going to give the main reason why he's confident that these believers will press on. Why he can say he's confident of better things concerning them, things involving salvation. And his confidence is rooted in the promise and the oath of God. The promise and oath that God gave to a man called Abraham in the Old Testament and then comes to his heirs. Okay, and so that's that's where he's heading. But I would just suggest if we're talking about the author's confidence, it is ultimately primarily found in the character of God, God's justice to remember the work and love of those who had labored. Now from this very strong encouragement and consolation to them, the author does make a brief appeal to them in verses 11 and 12. And so that's the second point. We saw the author's confidence, verses 9 and 10. Now we see what I call his desire, verses 11 and 12. Look in your Bible at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Some of the author's readers were presently obeying. Others perhaps, as he had said in chapter 5, were sluggish and lazy. But his desire very strong word here, the word for uh, negatively stated for lust can be a very strong or passionate desire positively. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. His strong desire is for, and don't you love how he says it here, for each one of them. For every single one of them, his readers, was that they would show or demonstrate diligence. Diligence. 
That's his desire. That's based off of his words of encouragement. Now, the words in this verses 11 and 12 are very important. I want to look at each one of them, or many of them. The word earnestness, for instance, in your text. He says, uh, his desire is for each one of you to demonstrate the same earnestness. The word earnestness means diligence, eagerness, or effort. This speaks of someone being meanfully engaged in something. And to this word, the author attaches an important adjective that kind of stumped me for a while. He says it's his desire that each one of them would demonstrate or show the same diligent effort, same diligence. And so that led me to the question, the same as who? Or whom. And I think that it becomes clear as you look into this passage that the author is challenging these people to be faithful with their own example of faithfulness in the past. Okay, I want you to demonstrate the same diligence. And when he says same diligence, I think he's, he's talking about the diligence that they had previously demonstrated earlier in their Christian experience. You say, Pastor Brent, I just really can't follow what you're saying. Well, here's what David Allen says. He says it may be better than I. He says, the readers are to demonstrate by their actions in the present time the same diligence described and illustrated in verse 10. They're to demonstrate the same diligence they had earlier in their Christian experience. The purpose in their returning then to demonstrate love and full hope is that, you keep reading in the text, that they would not be sluggish. Okay, that, that just reminds us of the greater context. Remember at the very beginning of this, 5.11, he says, you are sluggish hearers. He says, now my desire is that you would demonstrate the same sort of diligence you, you, you had when you first began so that you would not be sluggish so that you would not be sluggish. And returning to this sort of diligence, this love and hope, will enable them, the text finally says there uh, in uh, verse 12, uh, it will enable them to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Finally, we learn here that if they are able to return to their original diligence, not be sluggish. They will be able to persevere and have faith like those who have gone on before and who have already inherited the promises. Now we won't turn there, but uh, there's a chapter later on where the author of Hebrews will go through a list of people who have already lived and existed and who obtained an inheritance because of their belief, their faith. So perhaps you're already thinking about this, but if you went to Hebrews chapter 11, there the author of Hebrews will just go through a list of Old Testament, like heroes of the faith, right? You know this text? Hebrews, some of you, that's all, you, all you're studying this semester, right? Some of the women in here, I think you're studying the, is it the heroes of faith? Hebrews 11. Okay, uh, so... This final point the author is making is if you can return to that same sort of diligence you had earlier in your Christian experience, you'll be able to become an imitators of those who inherited the promises through their faith 
and perseverance. If the Hebrews will return in the present to the same diligence with which they started, they, will be, they too will be able to inherit the promises of God through faith and perseverance. And men and women, those promises that he's talking about, we'll learn about the next time I'm with you. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20 talk about the promises of God to Abraham. So as we go through this text, I want you to first, I want you to consider the situation of the original readers. Some of the Hebrews perhaps were growing discontent and disgruntled in their walk with the Lord. Some perhaps had lost their vision, the original vision they had in service to the Lord. They lost their great hope, Christian hope of heaven. That same sort of lack of zeal and effort might be affecting some around you in our assembly. Perhaps there are some around you in this assembly who are weary too. Perhaps there are some who feel like a homeless wanderer in this, this life without a lot of close relationships. Perhaps there are some other believers in this church who are facing challenges that they never even thought were probable. How will you encourage them? I would suggest learn from the Apostle Paul. How did he encourage these people in this text? I, I, I'll say he encouraged them in three ways. And this is, this is our final lesson about Paul. This is how you can be a source of encouragement to people who are struggling. First, he encouraged them with their past victories. Right? We looked at this in the text. He reminds them of the victories that God had worked in their life. Secondly, he encourages people who are really struggling spiritually in this way. He encouraged them with not only their past victories, but the past victories of other men and women who had inherited the promises through faith and perseverance. So how can I encourage someone who comes to me in a besetting sin or someone who is struggling physically? I can remind them of what God has already done in their life. And I think that's a helpful reminder for us at times, right? Sometimes we can get so self-focused on what is going on, and we just think there's no hope. It's, it's always going to be the same, and we forget. We forget about years of faithfulness that God has worked in our life. Of course, the second one, it, it, I think it's totally justifiable to remind them of other brothers and sisters who they know who were faithful up until the very end and who are now inheritors of the promises of God in heaven. I think it's great to remind ourselves of other brothers and sisters in our church who have passed away, have gone home to be with the Lord, and they were faithful right up until the end. And then finally and ultimately, I think the third way we should encourage people who come to us or going through perhaps the battle of their life is to remind them of God's goodness his character, as this text, remind them of his justice. In the end, he is the God of righteousness. He will do what is right. Remind them of their God. So as we close, I ask you, are you looking for brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage? If so, how would you do it? Perhaps you can learn from the Apostle Paul here. 
Remind these brothers and sisters of what God has done in their past. Remind them of faithful brothers and sisters in the past who endured to the end and remind them ultimately of God's justice. As we close, I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I've got one exercise I want you to do right there at your seat. Would you take one moment before we leave and ask God this question? God, who do you want me to encourage this week? Who do you want me to encourage this week? Perhaps there's someone you can come alongside of, speak words of confidence to them, be confident that God has already done a good work in them and will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. There are brothers and sisters in our church who are going through severe, severe physical trials. Some are facing the prospect of death soon. Who are you going to encourage this week? And then how? Perhaps you can learn from Paul. Read these verses again in your devotions. And consider how the author of Hebrews encouraged these readers. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to work through this passage of Scripture. I thank you for the author of Hebrews, his outstanding example. He motivates through warning, but he also motivates through encouragement and consolation. Lord, I pray that we too might, uh, like the author of Hebrews, have, uh, have this impulse that is is believing and optimistic of others, especially when we have seen you already demonstrate faithfulness in their life. Lord, I pray for uh, our church. I pray that uh, we would, this week, look for others to encourage. And uh, we are so thankful for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.